Good morning, everyone. So I get to do the pick-me-up part of the program by starting your morning talking about killer robots and how to coerce with them. Uh, as Tom mentioned, as you can tell, I'm, I've become really fascinated by the intersection of emerging technologies and international security challenges. Every generation of foreign policy leaders thinks that they face unprecedented challenges. But I think this time it's actually really true. We have never been at the cusp of so many revolutionary changes in technology, whether it's diplomacy, whether it's intelligence, or whether it's warfare and coercion. So just to set you a little bit of context, what I'm going to talk about today is part of a broader research program that really looks at how technology is fundamentally challenging the United States and international security. And there are three parts to it. The first, as Tom mentioned, is uh, offensive cyber operations. And so here at Hoover, we've been working in partnership with the United States Cyber Command to look at the future of offensive cyber operations. And so the book that he mentioned that just came out is part of that ongoing partnership. So that's the first component of the scary world in which I like to live. The second component is how changes in technology are dramatically challenging US intelligence agencies. And I'm happy to talk about that in Q&A. There's a, a piece that I've written that's coming out tomorrow in Foreign Affairs. The third piece is the piece I want to share with all of you here today. And that is how technology could be fundamentally changing how we and our adversaries think about threats with different types of weapons. Now, it started, if I can started with a field trip. So you see at the top of the slide, there's a sign for uh, Creech Air Force Base in, uh, outside of Las Vegas. So this afternoon, you're going to hear from our terrific National Security Affairs fellows, and they always talk about how much they get out of their time here at Hoover. This is an example of how much they give in their time here at Hoover. So the field trip to Creech Air Force Base was arranged by Bill Perry. Uh, and supported and really organized by one of our Air Force fellows here, Jackie Mungin, several years ago. And I and a group of other scholars went out to watch drone operations conducted from Nevada in Afghanistan and talked to commanders and operators about what that was like. That field trip had a profound impact on my thinking, my questions, and my research for the past several years. And I walked away specifically from that field trip with three questions rattling around in my head. The first was, could these kinds of weapons ever be used to threaten rather than just to kill? Because as we think about what we read about in the press, drone operations have been principally applied over the past 20 years in counterterrorism operations, right? Could they be used in a fundamentally different way? And the answer, as I'll, I'll give you the bottom line up front, is yes, I think they can. But the second question is, well, if they could be used to coerce, how? How exactly would that work? And as I'll argue in a minute, it's not obvious. In fact, it's very counterintuitive to think that these kinds of weapons would ever be useful tools to threaten another adversary. And then the third question is, more broadly, how can the United States win the ideas race? Because we know that new inventions in warfare are often created faster than the ideas about how to use them. And so we're not just in a competitive environment with China and Russia and other state actors about uh, warfare right, and about our economic power. We're in an ideas race about how to use the capabilities we have better than they can. So how do we win that, that ideas race? And in particular, with respect to coercion, what I found is that there is a disconnect. 
So much of what we think about, whether you're a policymaker or an academic, about how you threaten an adversary to get them to do what you want them to do, was rooted in Cold War thinking, with nuclear weapons hanging in the background. And so coercion theorists wrote most of what they wrote long before the advent of, un of unmanned aerial vehicles or armed drones. Right? So how do technological changes affect coercion dynamics? No one in coercion really thought about that because the technology hadn't been around. On the other hand, people who had been looking and operating and thinking about drones were thinking about the counterterrorism context, not about coercion. So the fundamental questions that have been raised in the context of drone operations are, do they work? Are they effective at actually degrading and destroying our terrorist adversaries? Who should be doing them? Are they legal or moral? What are the ethical implications of these kinds of autonomous weapons? So there was a gap. The coercion folks really weren't looking at drones. The drone folks weren't really looking at coercion. So that creates some interesting opportunities for research. So before I get into what I actually did, I want to make sure, as the line from Star Wars goes, these are not the droids you're looking for. These are not the drones you're looking for. What drones exactly am I talking about? So as my Air Force friends will be quick to point out, the drones that we see in combat operations today are pretty unsophisticated compared to what is coming down the pike. So at the top of the slide, you'll see Reaper and Predator drones. That's what you read about in the press. Those are the ones doing counterterrorism operations. They're very good at uncontested air environments, right? Because they're pretty defenseless. They're slow. They're loud. They don't really have maneuverability. They don't really have stealth. They don't really have defensive capabilities. So they're good at certain tasks, but they're not particularly good, say, at threatening an adversary that has very strong air defenses. Those are not the drones we're looking for. The drones of tomorrow are very different than the drones of today, and that's where the action is with coercion. So I put a few pictures on this slide, because I think in this case, a picture really is worth a 1,000 words. If you look at the orange airplane, that F-16 on the slide, you're going to see uh, this afternoon, uh, Papa Murphy is an F-16 pilot. He's going to be on our NSAF panel. Papa's not in that cockpit, right? Nobody's in that cockpit. That is a fourth generation fighter jet without a pilot that has already flown unmanned, right? This is not thinking 20 years down the line. This has already happened, right? Uh, next to that is the X-47B. That's an unmanned drone that landed autonomously on an aircraft carrier. Not somebody remotely at Creech working the joystick to land that airplane, completely autonomously landing on an aircraft carrier. Already happened, right? The picture at the bottom on the left uh, is a, the loyal wingman Valkyrie. That flew last month. Okay, so I can't get into the proprietary or classified details of its capabilities. Suffice it to say, it's been designed to keep up with the F-35, right? Our nation's most sophisticated fighter aircraft as a loyal wingman extending the capabilities and reach of the F-35. So this isn't coming five or 10 or 20 years from now. The drones of tomorrow are really tomorrow. Those are the drones I'm talking about. Think about robot fighter jets that are fast and stealthy, that can fly as a loyal wingman or can fly in swarms. Very different capabilities than what we're talking about at the top of the slide. 
The other thing to bear in mind is that we are not alone in the United States with this capability. That's a picture of a Chinese advanced drone that looks a heck of a lot like the one that landed on the aircraft carrier, doesn't it? So China has a pretty developed uh, armed drone program. China is also interested and has sold armed drones to other countries. China is one of 20 nations that we know that are developing armed drones. And in addition to that, there have already been nine countries, in, in, uh, uh, eight in addition to the United States, that have already used armed drones in combat, right? already used them. And I put the list at the bottom of that slide. So you can see uh, they include the UK, Israel, as well as Pakistan, Iraq, Nigeria, Iran, Turkey, and Azerbaijan. So we are not alone in this space. This technology is proliferating. So what do I mean about, by coercion? What's in a threat? This is a subject of considerable exploration, study, and debate. So Tom Schelling, the Nobel laureate economist, described coercion, and I love this phrase, as the diplomacy of violence. That's exactly what it is, right? Coercion is about getting others to do what you want them to do without fighting. The idea is to get your adversary to capitulate without going to war, not to win in a fight, but to have them back down before the fight ever happens. Now, coercion involves either the threats of force or sometimes the limited displays of force to convince the other side that you really do mean business and they better give in to your demands. Now, in international politics, of course, coercion is incredibly important to do well because the alternative to coercion is war and fighting is costly. So I have two pictures here, one of the ultimate examples of coercion, the Cuban Missile Crisis, where uh, John F. Kennedy and Nikita Khrushchev were going eye to eye over the Soviets' deployment of nuclear missiles in Cuba. But of course, coercion is very much alive and well today. President Trump and Kim Jong-un are engaged in coercive diplomacy now. And as we can see from recent events over the past couple of years of the Trump administration, it does matter how you show that you mean business by imposing uh, credible signals of commitment, which we've seen with the maximum pressure campaign with the Trump administration against the North Koreans. But of course, we are all coercion experts from our daily lives, right? Any parent is an expert in coercion. <laughs> Any parent of a teenager is a real expert in coercion, right? Fill in the blank. If you don't do this, you will lose that, usually involving a connective device of some kind, right? So this cartoon captures an alternative explanation of why the hare lost the race to the tortoise, right? You'll see, I love this because you can see the implicit threat. There are two implicit threats on the table. There's the gun pointing at the poor hare, and then there's the muscular man standing in the background uh, where uh, the coercer is saying, you fall behind the tortoise in the second lap. I don't care uh, if you sleep trip or have a brain hemorrhage. You fall behind, bunny. Am I making myself clear? We all experience coercion at the giving end and the receiving end in our daily life. But there are two problems with coercion in international relations, and they're gonna resonate in our daily lives as well. The two problems with coercing effectively are each side has an incentive to bluff, and each side has imperfect information about what the other intends to do and what their capabilities are. 
So in any conflict, particularly in international relations, each side wants to get its preferred outcome at the lowest possible cost, right? I want the other guy to capitulate. I want the other guy to believe that the benefits of capitulating are outweigh the costs of capitulating. But how do they know that I mean business? So this is a New Yorker cartoon about bluffing. You can see a bad bluff is much easier to detect, to detect than a good bluff. Here there's a political uh, candidate who the media, you can see the media is all around and he's holding a baby and he says, vote for me and the baby lives, right? Clearly a bluff. So imperfect information, the cartoon uh, that captures this is uh, the United States and North Korea. You know the old Charlie Brown cartoon where Charlie Brown wants to kick the football and Lucy always pulls the football away right before he's going to kick it. And this, at each time, she convinces him that her intentions are different this time and he should trust her, right? This is essentially the same dynamic with the United States and the North Koreans. Is it really different this time? What are their intentions? So bluffing and imperfect information are huge challenges in coercion in international politics. So how do you overcome those two challenges? Well, the answer historically has been issue a, a costly signal. Undertake costly actions yourself to show the other side that you mean what you say. Now, this is a complicated chart, but let me just uh, sum it up by saying the basic relationship is the more cost you incur yourself to signal an adversary, the more credible your threat is. So the ultimate costly signal when you're dealing with coercion, at least according to the literature, is deploying ground troops. So why do we have tripwire forces in Germany throughout the Cold War? We had tripwire forces in Germany throughout the Cold War not to win in a conventional fight with the Soviets because we were not going to win, right? They outmatched the US and our NATO allies and conventional capabilities. Our forces, thousands of them, were deployed in Germany throughout the Cold War, and by the way, of course, still are, to die in a conventional war with the Soviet Union because those American deaths were the guarantee that the United States would enter any conflict, including with our nuclear weapons. Putting lives on the line was a very costly signal to both our adversary and our allies that the United States meant it when we said our nuclear umbrella extended over our European allies, right? Tripwire force is the ultimate costly signal, right? So in this chart, you'll see there's a relatively S-shaped curve to costs and credibility. So if I just issue threats, do this or else, that's cheap talk. I haven't incurred any real costs. I haven't put people on the line, right? If I move up the curve and I think about, well, now I'm going to send a carrier battle group to the Taiwan Strait. Well, now I'm imposing some non-trivial costs if I'm the United States, right? That's a more credible signal to do this or else. And then you go all the way up the curve and you see the ground troops as the, as the sort of ultimate expression of costs. Now I put at the bottom of the slide, if you really want to disaggregate what, what I mean by costs, there are really three components, blood, treasure, and reputation. So am I willing to put lives on the line? Right? Do I have skin in the game? The more we are willing to do that, the more credible our signal. Am I imposing financial costs? on myself? Am I doing things that are financially costly to do, like sending a carrier battle group or deploying lots of ground troops? And third, have I put national honor on the line? Am I 
uh, am I doing moves that are domestically popular or not, right? If I'm undertaking moves that are politically costly, that signals I really mean it this time. So these three costs tend to trend together, okay? Here's the problem with drones. Drones are low cost in every sense of the word. They do not risk any warfighters, right? Those drone operators were operating out of Creech Air Force Base in Nevada, so they're not risking their lives in Afghanistan. Drones are relatively low cost when it comes to financial costs, so just because I really love the F-35 so much, I'm gonna pick on it a little bit more in this slide. You know, the roughly ballpark cost of the F-35 when you include sort of research and development costs, $260 million a plane. The bargain basement costs that we're now hearing about the F-35 after uh, production, $100 million a plane, right? By contrast, even a current Reaper drone is about $26 million. And that loyal wingman that I showed you the picture of, two to three million dollars a plane. So dramatically lower cost than their manned alternatives, lower cost than boots on the ground as well. One battalion in Afghanistan for a year is about 250 million dollars. So drones have, don't, don't risk warfighter lives. They're financially not as costly. And politically, they're actually uh, pretty popular. So one of the startling things, if you look at public opinion polls of drone strikes in the global war on terror, the polls are remarkably consistent. Americans approve of drone strikes against terrorists. So if you look at all the polls that have, that have occurred since 2011, almost all of them have a majority approval of drone strikes, even when Americans are accidentally killed in those operations. Support has almost never dropped below 50%. The average of support for drone strikes is 62% since 2011, right? And the modal, the most common level of support in public opinion polls for drone strikes is 69%. I mean, no, nobody gets that kind of approval rating these days, right? So drones are very uh, popular with the American people, surprisingly so, because drones don't come back in coffins and drones don't have families. Right? They are low-cost weapons in every sense of the word. So that's the puzzle. If you buy the argument, which has been made for a long time, that costly signals make the most credible threats, and drones are low-cost, how on earth could they ever be used to threaten an adversary effectively? That's the puzzle that I wanted to explore. And what I found, or what I hypothesized, is that there are three possible credibility mechanisms that are different about drones than other weapons. And as I'll argue in a moment, I then tested those hypotheses with surveys of foreign military officers, a couple hundred foreign military officers. So you don't have to take my word for it. You can hear what they have to say about it. So the three factors uh, or the three mechanisms by which drones can actually make credible threats, at least this is my hunch, right? is first, they are more sustainable. So if you look at the history of warfare, the character of war is changing. In the past, wars were shorter and they were more decisive. Think World War I and World War II. They lasted a few years and it was clear who the victor was. When wars are short and decisive, the test of resolve and when, you're, when you're issuing a threat is do this or I will start shooting at you. It's about initiating combat. But now, wars are growing longer and less decisive. Right? We've been in Afghanistan for 19, 18 years and counting. 
So when wars are longer and less conclusive, the test of resolve is not so much are you willing to initiate combat, but are you willing to sustain combat? And drones, because they're low cost, enable states that employ them to stay the course for as long as it takes, right? So the message to an adversary when you're coercing isn't do this or I'll start shooting at you. It's do this or I'll keep shooting at you forever because I can, right? Because my weapons are low cost. So that's the first potential credibility mechanism, sustainability, a, a signal of resolve, right? The second is that drones offer certainty of punishment in a way that no other weapon system before now really has. Now, other weapons certainly offer precision, right? But no weapon offers the combination of what we call persistent stare or loitering and precision strike that armed drones can. Right? So armed drones, even the reapers and predators of today, can loiter over a target for hours right? and then can strike at the push of a button. It's that combination of loiter and precision that is relatively unique. Now, Coercion theory, as I mentioned, was written in a different time when it was assumed that you couldn't credibly threaten to decapitate the leadership of an adversary because it was hard to find them and, it was, and there was too much of a lag time between when you found somebody and when you were able to actually strike them. But that's not true anymore. We know that drones can hunt for days or weeks or months or longer and then fire instantly at the target. Now, in the psychology literature, um, in, in the criminology literature, um, there's been a lot of research that shows that certainty of punishment changes behavior more than severity of punishment. So if you want to think about, we've all probably experienced this, red light cameras, right? So studies have found that red light cameras are much better at changing drivers' behavior than increasing fines. Why? Because you're certain you're going to get caught with a red light camera. And, and so it's the certainty of that punishment that changes your behavior more than the severity of punishment, increasing fines, for example, or even threatening jail, uh, a jail time. So there's something to this logic. It's not a perfect analogy in the international security space, but there's something interesting there about how could the psychology of adversaries be changed if they're confronted with the certainty of punishment rather than the severity of punishment. So imagine, for example, uh, I said to an adversary, it's one thing to say, capitulate to my demands or I'm going to initiate combat operations against your forces, right? That's pretty traditional. Now imagine I say, capitulate to our demands or there's a drone coming after you and your family and it's going to hunt for as long as it takes and it will find you. That's a little bit different. Right? So it's the certainty and specificity of punishment that could actually make threats to send in the drones more credible than you would otherwise think. Right? The third uh, credibility mechanism comes from relative costs. Now, all new weapons in warfare change the costs of combat, both for the, the state that has the new weapon and the receiving state. But in some circumstances, drones can do this to an extreme degree. So if you imagine a situation where there are two countries, one that has armed drones and one that does not, that could change the coercion game in a big way. Because the state that has armed drones can now threaten to impose pretty dramatic costs on the target 
at almost no cost to itself. So that could be a dramatically different uh, scenario. So just to sum it up, even though drones are low-cost weapons when it comes to blood, treasure, and, and reputation, there could be these alternative mechanisms of sustainability, of certainty and precision in shifting the relative costs of war that could make them very effective coercion tools, not just to kill our adversaries, but to threaten our adversaries effectively. So how do I know that this might actually be true? Because I'm talking about the future, not the past. So what I did was, again, thanks to the NSAF program, I got access to foreign military officers who come to Hoover every year with the Naval War College and the National Defense University. And I persuaded them, some would say maybe I coerced them, but I encouraged them uh, to fill out surveys. So I surveyed these foreign military officers, and it turns out, as far as I can tell, nobody had ever bothered to ask foreign military officers before what makes threats credible. Right? So, uh, I uh, got them in a room and I had them fill out these surveys and I asked them a series of questions, both about the credibility of threats in general and about the credibility of drone threats and scenarios in particular. Now, the slide that you're seeing just gives you the sort of background of the, the cohort that I surveyed. I got, when I, when I took out, I had more than 250 surveys, but because of language issues and others, I, I removed any surveys that had any indication that they might not have understood the question. So when I did that, I was left with 223 responses. You'll see that these uh, military officers who come to the United States are very senior, right? They're very experienced. So 70% had been in the military 20 years or more, right? This very senior group. They came from all over the world, pretty good geographic breakdown from the perspective of doing survey research, right? So 13% from the Americas, about a quarter from Europe, about a quarter from Asia, about a quarter from Africa uh, and the Middle East, and 4% either didn't say or from other areas of the world. And you'll see that they broke down, there's a very heavy Navy component. I would argue that that actually bodes well for the survey responses because naval officers believe more in naval power than air power anyway. So uh, these are probably conservative estimates about how armed aerial drones uh, might coerce. So I found a number of things, but I want to just uh, focus on two findings that I found particularly surprising and insightful uh, about uh, armed drones. The first is that these foreign military officers said that putting troops in harm's way or having skin in the game is not nearly as important at signaling resolve and credible commitment as deterrence or coercion theorists have believed for many, many years. So by a two to one margin, respondents said that drones actually demonstrate a state's commitment to a fight rather than their unwillingness to a fight. So let me give you the exact wording so you can see what I mean. So I asked these foreign military officers, which of the following statements do you most agree with? Okay. The first one is using armed drones tells our enemies we are committed to a conflict because we can fight without risking the lives of our troops. 66% right? agreed with that statement. I thought it was going to be the opposite. I thought that I'd have 66% or at least a large percentage agree with the second statement, which is that using armed drones tells our enemies we are not committed enough to a fight to risk the lives of our troops. 
right? So the second statement is what coercion theorists have long believed. In fact, what we found is foreign military officers believed that drones showed commitment, that sustainability, willingness to stay the course that I had hypothesized. Okay. So the second finding was that when I gave my uh, foreign military officers scenarios, their responses showed that they found that drones in these hypothetical situations were just as effective as ground troops at making credible threats for all the reasons that we'd expect. Now, let me share with you the scenario that I actually gave to our, th these are the findings, and don't worry, I'll go through them in a minute. So I, uh, the scenario that I gave was, imagine that there are two countries, and I didn't give them names because I didn't want there to be any kind of uh, you know, bias in country, you know, of specific countries. So I said, imagine country A and country Z. They share a border, and they share water, a river that's on that border, and they're in conflict over that. They have equal military capabilities. They're relatively equal in power, except for one big difference. One country has armed drones and the other country doesn't. Okay. So the country with drones issues a press statement that says, we notice that you've been violating our water usage agreement along the border, and if you don't uh, reduce your water intake from this shared river by 25% in 60 days, we are going to deploy. In one version, it's we're going to deploy 1,000 ground troops. In the other, it's we're going to deploy a squadron of armed drones. And with, the, with both of these deployments, after 60 days, they're going to monitor activity and will use lethal force against violators that they find. This is the threat. This is the press statement that the coercer is issuing. So then the question for the military officers was, do you believe that the coercer is going to do what it says it's going to do? And do you think it will be effective? And so what you find in this chart is the blue uh, bar on the chart is the drones, the, the squadron of drones. The gray one is the threat to deploy ground troops. Well, you see that in both cases, right, the ground troops or the drones, our four military officers believe that the threat was credible, that um, ground troops and drones would be deployed, that ground troops and drones would most likely use force, that they would most likely continue operations, and that they would coerce effectively. But look at the difference between the drone bars and the ground troop bars. It turns out that drones are more likely to be deployed. So 83% of respondents thought that drones would actually be deployed versus 70% who believed that the ground troop threat would be carried out. More of our foreign military officers believed that, that drones would actually employ lethal force, right? Doing what we said, what the coercers said they would do. More of them believed that they would continue their operations. And at the end of the day, our respondents found they estimated that coercion would be about 40%, 40% likely that either ground troops or drones would coerce successfully. Now, there's something interesting in the, if, they're, if drones are uh, more likely to be deployed, more likely to use force, and more likely to be sustained, why isn't that number higher relative to ground troops? But it's pretty surprising that it's anywhere in the neighborhood of deploying ground troops based on what our experience has been and what the theories have been about coercive threats. So this is a pretty surprising finding, suggesting that those three credibility mechanisms I mentioned, the sustainability, precision punishment, uh, and shifting the relative costs of war, 
may actually be uh, robust enough to, uh, to, to, to work, at least in the minds of our foreign military officers. So where does that leave us? I think there's pretty compelling evidence so far that coercion may not be what it used to be, and that as technology evolves, we need to rethink these fundamental ideas of international statecraft, including how coercion works. Um, we know from the national security strategy that H.R. McMaster um, so brilliantly uh, created, as he puts it, we're in a competitive world today. Well, we're in a competitive world with these kinds of ideas, not just with the weapons that we're coming up with. There are all sorts of questions that remain with respect to drones and uh, coercion. What makes coercive threats effective? I think we're only beginning to figure that out. And I'm excited to do more surveys of foreign military officers and more simulations with different populations to better understand those mechanisms. So one question would be, would American military officers answer those surveys in the same way that foreign military officers answered them? Are there different perceptions about threats and credibility based on your own experience and your own country? We don't know. So that's an area of future examination. What about coercion with non-state actors like terrorist groups? We don't know yet, right? Uh, what are the likely strategic responses to drone threats? Because whenever there's a threat with a new weapon, there's usually some other countermeasure. So for those of you who are Game of Thrones watchers from last night, if you managed to catch it, for every dragon that is developed, right, think about an innovative, in military innovation, there's a counter-dragon capability, right? It's just a question of what that's going to be, whether it's a crossbow or a zombie dragon. So I hope I didn't give anything away for those of you who haven't seen the whole series. So a whole host of questions uh, still to be answered, but it's clear that this is a growing and important area of national security for the United States and international security with respect to our allies around the world. Let me stop there and I'll open it up for your questions.